As our account concludes this morning, we have a pretty good idea of what these shepherds went back to, fields and sheep and so on. But there's one more place these shepherds should go, to a master class. Now, you're familiar perhaps with the master class. These are online classes you can take taught by the experts. It's a subscription-based service. You get two to five hours of video content on a particular topic or subject. These shepherds could teach us not only on shepherding flocks, of which they were probably experts, but they could teach us about celebrating Christmas. All of us have traditions, and we have habits, and that's good. We should. But as believers, we also have a keen interest in what God wants. Celebrating Christmas in the Lord, celebrating Christmas with the Lord. So this morning, we turn to the fields of the ancient Near East to this master class to learn from these masters. What would the shepherds teach you and I about celebrating Christmas? Now, it should be observed that shepherds were experts in what? Shepherding. Their training did not include instructions on how to have a great Christmas, so this is really a a fitting place to begin our message this morning. Who should celebrate Christmas? Now, in the first few verses of Luke 2, we didn't cover them in our reading, but in those first few verses, Jesus is born. He's born to Mary and Joseph. Luke locates them in a town called Bethlehem. Joseph was from there. They had to return there to register for a census. And nearby, in the same region, there were some shepherds. Now, in the Bible, shepherding gets some pretty high marks. When God appeared in a burning bush, he appeared to a shepherd, to Moses, When God called his king, he did so from his flock, King David. Even the office of prophet was a dramatic career change. Amos came as a prophet from the herds. Of course, our beloved Psalm 23 paints God as our good shepherd. And Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, in practice, to be a good shepherd, one had to master many different skills. You can imagine. A shepherd was a veterinarian, setting broken bones, binding wounds, delivering babies. The shepherd was a bodyguard. Sheep pranced around the countryside, Somewhat absent-mindedly, they were a delicious food to local predators. And that's to say nothing of thieves. The shepherd had to be a botanist, understanding grasses and vegetation. He had to be an agriculturalist, understanding sheep and their habits. He had to be a meteorologist. He couldn't just open up the weather app like you and I do. Or look outside and guess that it might rain today. No, these guys had to watch the weather. 
Wet wool is gross. Rain rot, that's a real thing for sheep. And that's to say nothing of sheep caught in the open. Let me tell you, if a sheep could get struck by lightning, it would. (laughs) These guys had to be diplomats. They're bumping up against other shepherds competing for grass. They're dealing with swindlers. They're probably dealing with the guy who peeks through his blind just waiting for you to cross over into his yard. All that is involved makes us conclude that these guys were probably not fully appreciated. And I should say as well, at the time of Luke 2, these were not the pictures on our Christmas cards. According to the Old Testament law, shepherds were unclean. They touched animal excrement. They dealt with the dead. This would have impacted their ability to attend the synagogue service and to worship and sacrifice. Generally speaking, shepherds were considered lowly. Their trade is occupied by morally loose men, so it is word on the street. And some even thought them dishonest. They weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. In writings called the Talmud, these are the the Jewish records. They're traditions based off of Old Testament law. Listen to what they said about shepherds testifying in court. Quote, the sages further added the following to the list of those disqualified from bearing witness. The shepherds, who shepherd their animals in the fields of others, and are therefore considered like robbers. The collectors of government taxes, who collect more than the amount that people are legally liable to pay. And the customs officials, who collect customs in an illegal manner. Now, some of those groups, you might agree with that. But but why is this? Why such a a focus on the shepherds numbered among those groups? Well, there's another writing called the Gemara. It's another division of the Talmud. It explains that shepherds were not disqualified at first. The sages initially assumed they were, it was merely incidental that their sheep were grazing in the fields of others. And when they realized that they would intentionally send the animals to the fields of others from the outset, The sages issued a decree that they are disqualified from bearing witness. And to put it another way, they were grass thieves or pasture squatters. I'm not going to continue to read to you these Jewish traditions. There are many. They get into what constitutes a shepherd based on herd size and so on. But just keep in mind that first, these rules or these laws, they were meant to safeguard the Jewish people from actually breaking Old Testament law. But, over time, they became like Old Testament law. And you know how Jesus felt about that in reading the Gospels. Secondly, it can be very difficult to shed a reputation once you have it. And perhaps that's been an experience you've had in life, And that was probably true for the shepherds. For not all shepherds were the descriptions that I read today. Now, these shepherds labored outdoors. This was not an easy occupation. Our account locates them in the fields or probably on some kind of rotation. The word watch is plural. It's watches, meaning that some would probably keep watch, some would rest, and so forth. But their job would have been fairly mundane. 
On this night, it was probably a very normal shift. They're punching in, punching out, and keeping watch, and falling asleep. And then in verse 5, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Angels are incredible creatures. They're extremely powerful. They are utterly immortal. And they inhabit a heavenly realm unlike ours. And when they appear, it is not Michael Landon. Their appearance produces a fear. In fact, in your text, this is the singular response of the shepherds. Our English Bibles don't quite capture it well. They translate they were afraid. They were filled with great fear. King James says they were sore afraid. But Luke used the same word twice as a a way to, to try to capture that emotion. Literally, it translates, they were fearfully fearful. If a school existed for angels, in other words, if they had to take some kind of training before moving out into ministry, verse 10 would be one of the first verses they needed to learn. This is common vernacular throughout the Bible coming from the mouths of angels. They would walk onto campus, it's day one of class, appearing to mortals, And lesson number one would be simply, do not be afraid. You need to learn this phrase. You're going to use it often. Because when you appear in the glory of God, you are going to scare people. Daniel may be one of the most dramatic descriptions recorded in all of the Bible. Daniel received an angelic appearance and he recorded it. I fell on my face, he says. My natural color turned into a deathly pallor. I grew pale. My, no breath has been left in me. You see, these aren't little fairies. These aren't guardian angels. These are representatives of the glory of the Most High. I mean, you can imagine these two groups set side by side. You have the shepherds, the lowly, the outcast over here, and these glorious heavenly beings from another realm over here. So what does all this teach us about Christmas? Who should celebrate? The lowly should celebrate. The outcast should celebrate. Now, to be clear, everyone should celebrate. But who does God go to first? You know, I think he would have been more choosy. That he would have gone to someone else or some other group of people, not these shepherds. I mean, God, after all, creates all things and owns all things. He has an abundance of resources. He could have formed the best marketing team and identified the target audience and gone to them. God's son is born. You are invited. Come and see. That could have been the message to a much, quote, worthy group of people. This is a message for kings. Rome is a bunch of winners, not these shepherds. Rome has conquered the land. How about the religious? Jerusalem isn't that far away. The priests are perhaps the most holy in all of the land. Even the wealthy. They dress better than shepherds. They probably smell better. They at least understand etiquette. But none of these groups gets a card. God sends his angel to thieves, to liars, 
to the poor, to the outcast, to those of questionable character. You see, God invites celebration to any who were poor in spirit. God invites those who mourn and mourn their sin to come and celebrate. God invites those who live pretty ordinary, sinful lives to celebrate the birth of Jesus. See, the shepherds reveal that celebration is for the lowly and for the outcast. We'll keep asking questions here. What about this celebration? I mean, there's got to be some kind of reason or, or purpose that's lying behind the party. What do the shepherds teach us about why we would celebrate? Well, we just identified the shepherds as about the least likely candidate for God's grand announcement. Surely someone else would have been invited to come to this celebration. But no, we see here it's the shepherds. And after the angels calm them down, what do they say? What do the angels say to the shepherds? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now we see this word so often we probably gloss over it. This word, behold. But the word behold is important. This is a way to, to draw attention to the one reading or listening. It's almost like yelling, look, or pay attention to what follows. If you've ever taken Spanish, you may recall that it's, um, you, you read a sentence or you write it. A, an exclamation made in Spanish begins the sentence with an exclamation mark, and then again at the end. So what you have at the, at the very beginning, right at the front, is, is an indication that what's about to follow is an exclamation. That's essentially what this word behold does. It wants you and I to slow down and to do just that, to, to behold what is about to be said. So the shepherds would teach us, based on this exclamation, that there is good news. Now, that statement may be a surprise to us, depending upon what you watch or what you read through the week. That statement may be a surprise, depending upon how much time you spend in the Word of God or in prayer. We may forget that there is good news. And there is good news of great joy. Of finding out that good news were not enough, we now find out that it comes with great joy. Great joy is the lifelong endeavor of many a man. It is a quest. It's what we might call the sum of life. It's the pursuit of finding joy. Seeking it, then snatching it, then losing it, then seeking it again. If only I could attain and, and keep this joy, it's so elusive. There is good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And see, what is being announced to the shepherds is going to be for everyone. These shepherds lived in what we would call a, a we and the society. We are God's chosen people. We are the Jews, and there is they. There are those, the Samaritans and the Romans and the Canaanites. We might want to lump the shepherds in with them as well. 
living on the fringe or the outside of society. We see here that this birth announcement, it is not sent to Mary and Joseph's family. That's the normal place to send a birth announcement to family members, people who would know the baby, but perhaps that is just the point. This announcement, as we've observed, is given to outsiders. It's given to people who needed good news. What would the shepherds teach us about why we celebrate? Well, God loves to give good news. God loves to give good news. God wants you to be happy. Can we say that this morning? That might pop the button on some tight-fitting religion, but God wants us to be happy. Now, of course, we know that God has a design for that happiness, for our joy. His good news here is meant to bring us great joy, but God wants us to experience joy. He wants it for other people too. You see this, it's for all people, as the angel has exclaimed, for the poor, for the unrefined, for the inmate, for the homosexual, for the transgender, for the shepherd. We, by the way, need to make sure at this church that we're leaving plenty of room for all kinds of people here. You know, I've written in my notes a list of names that people got, that, that God brought to this church this past year. These are outcasts or sinners. These are people who are different than you and I. That we could make a list like that says something. These people who are coming in from what we would call a dark field on the outskirts of society, they're looking for something, but even bigger than that, God is doing something. There's no random chance. Do we have good news for them, for those kinds of people? We went downtown again last Friday night, and I was thinking about what we've done this past year. We've passed out dozens of Bibles and given the gospel to all kinds of different people. What if God begins a harvest? What if those people start showing up in this church, in these seats on Sunday mornings? What if as they open that Bible, they find not only the truth of the word of God, but the little card inside that has our address and this time written on it? What if God starts bringing them here? Do we have good news for them? Do we want them to have great joy? These are questions worth pausing before answering. But I think deep down in our hearts, we want to say, yes, we do. And I think we should. Because you never know what God can do in 2024. The shepherds teach us here that God loves to give good news. That God loves to give it to you. He loves to give it to me. And he loves to give it to them. Well, in, these, in their master class here, these shepherds would, would need to say more, right? I mean, so far we've been trucking along. You can't just say good news and fail to explain what it is. So in verse 11, let's ask them one more question. What good news do we celebrate? What good news do we celebrate? Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Now, notice the switch that happened there. On one hand, at the end of verse 10, there's good news 
for all the people. It's very broad. It's far-reaching. But now in verse 11, who's it for? It's for you. Jesus is born for you. It's very precise. It's very particular. I think one temptation you and I may face is that this promise is not for me. Perhaps I've sinned greatly. Or perhaps I don't measure up. Or maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe these shepherds would say the same. And frankly, there's truth to that. The Bible teaches that you have sinned greatly. And that your sin is far worse in God's eyes than you know. And that you don't measure up. Have you read the Bible? Have you tried to measure up to the standards laid out as the measuring rod for living? And you're not worthy. I mean, none of us are, says Romans 3. But yet, who is the good news for? For you. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you. A few hours ago, my mother gave birth just over there in the town of Bethlehem. The angel tells the shepherds, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, there's three titles there, and each of those titles convey or communicate something about the work that Jesus does. And we know that Jesus is his name. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the instruction was given, name your baby Jesus, which they did. More specifically, he was Jesus of Nazareth. That's an important distinction. There were many people named Jesus in this day. Well, which Jesus are you talking about? What's the Jesus from Nazareth or the Jesus of Nazareth? And though the name was common, you know there's nothing common about this God-man. His name means Yahweh saves or the Lord of salvation, which might be a clue or a tip to exactly what he's going to do. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And now Luke, in chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to, to draw that out. And each of these titles is going to indicate, as I mentioned, something of what this Jesus does. Now, each is an important fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but what I want to do here is I want you to see how he fulfills them and how these titles are good news for you. The first title is the title Savior. Later in Luke, in chapter 19, Jesus encounters a man in a tree. That's right, in a tree. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, he says, for today I must stay at your house. That means that Zacchaeus has two problems. The first is he's about to have a dinner guest and he's prepared nothing. You can identify with this. You know the feeling of hosting company. I need to get the food ready. I need to get the house ready. Kids, close your bedroom door. (laughs) That's the fix, the first fix for Zacchaeus. The second one is the flack that he takes. There's a bunch of people who start grumbling. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. We might group the tax collectors down there somewhere in the bottom with the shepherds. It's that 
It's the view that society takes on these classes. People call him a sinner. They can't believe that Jesus would dine with him, but Jesus wants to. Zacchaeus has had a heart change. And Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's part of the good news. Jesus comes to save. He comes to save those who, who know their sin. If there's a sense you have this morning that something is not completely right between me and God, that there's a, a gap or a chasm, something's off, that is true, follow that. Because Jesus wants to save you from the penalty of sin that creates that. When Zacchaeus, we, learns, we learn here that Jesus is going to save out of any lifestyle. He's going to save the tax collector. He's going to save the shepherd. He's going to save from any sin. The second title in this verse is the title Christ. It's interchangeable with the word Messiah. It means anointed one. Someone who's set aside. We would say that Jesus is specifically tasked to save. He's the Savior. Speaking of the Old Testament, Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ, or speaking of himself, that I would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in my name. Jesus was anointed or set aside to, to pay the penalty for the sin that we commit. And he suffered, the text says, he rose from the dead. The Bible says that he forgives all who repent or all who turn from their sin. And it's good news. Because Jesus forgives all who come to him. And Jesus, thirdly, is your Lord. It's the third title in this verse. In Luke 6, Jesus preached a sermon. And near the end of this sermon, he asked a question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. I mean, you hear the two scenarios. There's, there's the one house that stands and there's the one house that collapses. One man has used wisdom, one man has not. And Jesus here is comparing those who obey him set against those who don't. See, doing what Jesus commands us, it is a gift. Living with Jesus as Lord, that is a gift. Why? Because where you build your house matters. And perhaps in this life, you may need help. Maybe from time to time you've made a poor choice or a bad decision. Listen, you have someone you can go to. 
You can seek his counsel, seek his wisdom before making those decisions. And sometimes when we fail, we can seek his grace and his forgiveness when we sin. We have someone who can help us, and we would say his words are our foundation. They are our wisdom. So what good news do we celebrate? Well, God gave us a Savior and a Christ and a Lord. And God sent Jesus to the lowly, to the humble. In our text this morning, he did this because he loves to give good news, even to the least among us. Tomorrow, all kinds of people are going to celebrate. But believer, you and I have reason to celebrate, if anyone has reason to celebrate. I believe the shepherds would teach us well. Now tonight... The shepherds are going to go into town, and we're going to pick up in verse 12. They're going to have more to say because there's more to see. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, this is but a sampling of reasons that you've given us to celebrate. And our salvation is... One of the greatest gifts, if not the greatest gift we've ever been given and great reason to celebrate. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for taking on flesh, and for experiencing the many experiences that we do. I pray that you would cause us to find joy in the good news of our redemption and that you would grant us eyes to see in Scripture and in life, the many reasons we have to celebrate. What a joy it is to be known by you and to know you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.